The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Heinz, for the uh, warmth of your introduction. And it's a privilege for me to be sharing this weekend with uh, Tony Costa and uh, Michael Haken. And I'm grateful for Tony for assisting me in saving my marriage by switching around the uh, session this evening. It really isn't all that bad, but I have uh, one wife and three children, Naomi, uh, Hannah, and uh, Isaac. And uh, we've lived here in Toronto now for uh, six years. And um, it's been a blessing for us living in Canada. And uh, we've recently taken on the new challenge of uh, this church in the city of Toronto. So there is information about that downstairs if you are a Torontonian. The subject for this evening, the problem of evil. The problem of evil is probably, for many of you, especially if you have uh, frequented Sola Scriptura conferences, or that you have any interest at all in uh, apologetics, will not be a new question to you. And one of the things that I asked myself when I was thinking about and praying about this evening was how am I going to deal with the problem of evil in a way that it is even remotely fresh to the minds of the people who will be there. Uh, Generally speaking, these kinds of conferences do attract people who have done some thinking about these things and have at least read some material that uh, will have tackled the subject or the topic. And so... Uh, Before we come to God's Word, let me just make one or two introductory remarks. The problem of evil is usually dealt with as essentially a metaphysical problem. A problem in philosophy. uh, Sometimes a problem in epistemology. Uh, The essence of the objection comes down to us from a a philosopher, an English Scottish philosopher, called David Hume who really questioned whether we can have a God who is wholly good, who is all-powerful, and yet still permits evil in the world. He felt that these were essentially inconsistent. And so normally, of course, although there is, um, in terms of formal logic, nothing formally inconsistent about those two statements, people add a bridge premise in their minds. And that premise is, such a God would want to eliminate all evil and suffering from the world. Now, I could rehearse for you this evening the uh, classic responses to that. But you could pick up one of several books downstairs and read how that particular conundrum has been responded to. I give you the conclusion. God has wise reasons for permitting the evil Uh, which takes place in the world. We're not privy to all those reasons. We don't know all of those reasons. We don't understand all of those reasons. But we're not required to give the God's eye view of the universe. We can affirm and we do affirm that God is wholly good. That God is all-powerful. Evil exists and God has wise reasons for permitting it. Interestingly enough, The problem of evil is only a problem if God exists. Because if God doesn't exist, then there is no problem, as Richard Dawkins has put it. We are just 
selfish genes, random replication, there's no good nor evil, no justice nor injustice, just blind, pitiless indifference. In a universe without God, there is no problem of evil because there's no category of evil to grapple with. In other words, to posit real evil that is not illusory or imaginary requires a moral law and a moral law requires a moral law giver. So ironically, as soon as one starts talking about evil and good in concrete terms, you've already smuggled God into the universe. That is why most of the atheists don't want to talk about good and evil and they don't want to define them. And that's why the Eastern tradition in philosophy does not talk about real evil. Because for them, evil is a social convention or it doesn't exist. So one of my options tonight was to rehearse for you uh, a few syllogisms, for those of you familiar with logic, and just walk you through the classic responses, Augustine's uh, uh, several formulations, one looking at human choice, the other looking at privation, definition of evil and so forth. But I thought that tonight you could get that from any book on apologetics downstairs. I would tackle the subject slightly differently, at the same time at least giving a nod in the direction of those classical arguments concerning evil. Let's turn to the book of Genesis and chapter 3 and we're going to read verse 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 through 5. Now I know we're reformed and this is a reformed church but you can smile at me during the session just to give you permission at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 through 5. We have every reason to smile after all, don't we? Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You shall be as gods. And Genesis gets to the very rub, gets to the very heart of the question that we face this evening in terms of understanding the issue, the problem of evil, the problem of ethics, the problem of good and evil in our own time. Every man or woman tempted to be their own god. In other words, no law, no standard above men and women. Instead we have, and we live in a context and in a world where every man and woman is declaring themselves righteous. Human beings become, when submitting to this temptation, the final arbiter of their own standard. Good and evil is defined for oneself. That's the temptation here. To define for oneself good and evil. To become the source of definition. You recall that when Moses is confronted by God at the burning bush, 
And Moses says, who shall I say is sending me to Pharaoh? God says, you have to say, I am is sending me to you. You see, when you name something, you define it. To name something is to exercise authority over and to define, to be the source of definition. So when Moses asked God's name, he was asking him to define himself. God can't be defined by us in human terms. God is the source of all definition and he defines good from evil. But the satanic temptation, the the root of Phariseeism, the root of existentialism, the root of our modern moral crisis is this temptation to be as God. Has God said? The temptation there wasn't simply for the immediate issue of the fruit, but it was a temptation to also build culture, to build a utopia in terms of human definitions, in terms of a human law and a human standard. After all, that's what the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 is all about. It's the extension of human pride from submitting to this temptation, this desire to build society, to find the definitions for society, to define law and structure and so on and everything else in terms of human positive lawmaking, human beings as a source of definition for good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. Every effort then goes back to the temptation to our first parents and to Babel. Satanism is not primarily about hocus-pocus, magic tricks, or even the occult. Satanism, in its essence, is about self-righteousness. It's about defining for oneself good and evil. It's about becoming the source of definition. And that's why, unfortunately, the pulpit in the church in the modern world can be a more serious source of Satanism than the palm reader or psychic reader down the street. Because as soon as we import humanism into defining good and evil, we have, we have reached the essence of Satanism. The essence of Satanism is, is to call good evil and evil good, which we are seeing in our time. The problem of evil then is human beings seeking to be their own gods, their own arbitrators, the, their own source of definition of right from wrong. How does this relate to our everyday human experience? Well, we all face questions of right and wrong, good and evil, questions of ethics every day. Human beings are moral beings. There's no escaping that. We have a moral nature. And so the reason I give very short thrift to the likes of Hitchens and Dawkins and so on, and one of my colleagues, John Lennox, debated Dawkins in the University of Alabama, and there's a rematch in Oxford later this year. These men are completely unable, and they end in, in incoherent rants when it comes to the question of morality, because they too are moral beings. They know they can't define good and evil in any sort of objective sense. It is interesting that the God delusion, for example, is one long moral rant from start to finish by a man who believes there's no basis for moral judgments. So we can give short thrift to those who aren't even prepared to seek to define good 
from evil. The problem for, for most of our friends and neighbours is not some metaphysical problem, can we solve Hume's question. Hume's question was solved a long time ago. The question is personal. How do we live with our moral nature? When you're selling your house, or selling your second-hand car, how much do you disclose to the potential buyer? If a bought-as-seen mentality governs the second-hand car market, and you know there's problems with your car, how much do you reveal? If you know that there are some immediate problems that need fixing and you reveal those, but you're also aware that there's a, a sweating head gasket on the engine block that's probably going to need changing, how much do you reveal? How much do you say? Maybe none of you ever fixed your cars. Well, when I was a younger, much younger man, not that old now as you can see, but when I was 17, 18, 19 and I was driving various junkers around, uh, I had to fix my own car. What did one reveal in the sale of a second-hand car? You see, these kinds of questions are the questions that your friends and mine are wrestling with. It's not just the more philosophical questions. These are meta-ethical questions, if you like, when we ask not simply how should we behave, but how do we determine what is ethical. To ask a meta-ethical question is not just to try and define ethics, it's to ask how we determine what is right from wrong, what is good from evil. And there have been, broadly speaking, and I am oversimplifying here, but broadly speaking, two approaches to the question of ethics. The first is consequentialist schools of ethics. And the consequentialists, of course, have said, what is right and wrong is determined by, in some measure, the outcome of the action. So if it results in some kind of happiness or some kind of good or whatever, and of course the problem is always measuring those things as well as having already needed to have some understanding of what good is. Uh, how do you know what a good outcome is unless you've already defined what's good? How can you have a pragmatic truth that says, well, this works if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish? So those kinds of uh, schools of thought fall foul of those critical questions. But the consequentialists essentially say, well, you look at the consequences of the action and it's on the basis of that you try and make an ethical judgment. The other school is the deontological school of ethics, which says, no, certain things are right, certain things are wrong, not because of the consequences, but because they are right in and of themselves, from the Greek deon, meaning obligation. And for us as Christians, we believe that an action is right or wrong, depending on whether it conforms to God's word and God's law, which is an expression of his character and nature. Now for us as Christians, the issue of ethics isn't just a distant metaphysical problem to be discussed and knocked around by philosophers dealing with aesthetics. Rather, it is the very essence and heart of the meaning of Christianity because the Christian faith involves a radical moral, spiritual and intellectual transformation. In fact, so much so, we're told in Scripture that those who do not pattern their lives after the perfect law of liberty and claim to be believers deceive themselves and aren't believers at all. Just read 1 John, chapter 1. 
Scripture teaches us that by virtue of our creation in the image of God, this moral imprint, this moral stamp is ineradicable in us. It doesn't matter how much we try to uh, suppress it or trick ourselves out of it or maneuver around it, we are confronted with our moral nature. This inward law impressed upon people by common grace to all men and women was the referent for moral judgments for those who did not have the revealed law of Moses. It's interesting that God still held the Canaanites or the city of Nineveh accountable to his standard of righteousness and law, not some pagan standard. He held them accountable to the same standard of righteousness and justice and he judged them accordingly. Paul makes clear, doesn't he, in Romans 2 that the Gentiles do by nature by what God has placed in them what is inscribed on the tablets of the law when they are obedient to it. And so, as believers, we recognize and we understand that there are certain commandments, there are certain moral obligations that have been set down by God for all time because they are a reflection of His nature. The complication is, of course, that because of what we've read in Genesis 3, we're fallen human beings. And even as Christians, we know we're fallen human beings. Paul talks about his wrestling with his own fallen condition in Romans 7. We know the truth and we know we're required to act on it, but this complication of our fallenness results in a lack of desire even to will the good, let alone the ability to act upon it when we're in an unregenerate condition. The scripture speaks of the will as created by God and therefore it rejects the illusions of absolute freedom human autonomy, independence, neutrality and so forth from God that are the essence of humanistic thought. We're not independent, we don't have an absolute freedom. I, can't, I don't have an absolute freedom now. I have certain freedoms that God has granted me, but I can't fly to the moon at this point. I can't defy certain laws God has established. I can't determine who my parents will be, the place of my birth, the colour of my skin. There's many things about my own life where I recognise that a sovereign hand is governing them. I don't have an absolute freedom and there is no absolute human autonomy and yet that was the very essence of the temptation to our first parents. The problem of good and evil well, Satan says, solve it this way, define it for yourself. Make it a cultural product. Make it a relative product to time and history. Make it a subjective thing based on your own desires. There's no need to refer to God. All other views give a radically different account, though, of God, of human beings, of the condition of the will, of the human relationship with the divine, and of course they therefore come to the question of evil, good and evil, very differently. And what I want to do this, this evening, the, the focus of where I want to take us, is to examine what I think now has become the most pervasive and the most serious 
and indeed the most dominant popular view for ethics in our time, and its root is pantheistic. The root is pantheism. What is a pantheistic approach to God and ethics? Well, pantheism literally means all is God. All is God. It posits ultimately a chain of being or a scale of being. There may be uh, an ultimate one, but along the way there are different levels that one can attain to. Pan means all, theism of course means God. And pantheism underlies of course Buddhism and Hinduism, which we're familiar with as Eastern religions. But it also characterizes the New Age movement in our time, Scientology, Christian science, and I would say even the modern philosophy of the state. So that, in fact, if you go to the airport, and uh, Heinz was touching on this, and you pick up the most popular uh, shelf reads today, like The Secret and so on, you find that these books are filled with pantheistic notions. If you pick up books by science writers, like Chet Ramo, people who avow an atheistic and evolutionary view of reality, they are today shot through with pantheism, Gaia, Mother Earth a way of somehow trying to recover some form of spirituality, some sort of basis for ethics, without having to acknowledge God. It has played also a very important role in the history of Western philosophy, Spinoza, and in particular Hegel, were deeply influenced by pantheism, and through Hegel we have been influenced today in our philosophy and understanding of the state and therefore of morality. And it's the state in Canada today which is defining morality for us. It's the state in Canada today which is defining marriage and the family and morality for the church. It's the state which is dictating these issues, and its root is pantheistic. And it's important, I believe, that we understand this as we grapple with the question of good and evil in our time. The uh, Christian apologist Norman Deisler identifies several forms of pantheism. But in pantheism, generally speaking, God subsumes all things and is found within all things. He contains all reality and pervades it all. That is, there is nothing that exists that is not God, exists apart from God, or is not somehow identified with God. Now, the first strain of pantheism is absolute pantheism. The Greek philosopher Parmenides held this. There is only one being, that is God. Everything else that appears to exist does not exist. It's an illusion. There's emanational pantheism, which was promulgated by a later philosopher of a Platonist sort called Plotinus, or Plotinus. And in this view, everything flows from God in the same way a flower unfolds from a seed. So you have everything being an emanation of God. For Plotinus, ultimate reality is simple, unknowable, undifferentiated oneness that is beyond being and yet it somehow produced all beings. So you have this rather absurd category of being either being nor non-being 
as I understand it, you've got to be one or the other. But there's this beyond being category that's been created, and this beyond being somehow emanated into everything that exists. Knowledge is attained through a sense, through the sense world rising up, through the intellect and reason, finally into a mystical union that removes all multiplicity so that an ultimate unity is finally realized. It's an ascent of being, it's a scale of being. And evolutionism, of course, posits the same idea. Another form of pantheism of particular relevance in the West today is developmental pantheism, and this was Hegel's pantheism. And even though he uh, professed a form of Christianity, all history for him was merely the unfolding manifestation of an absolute spirit. He denied absolute pantheism, but he had this developmental type of pantheism. He was a, an anti-supernaturalist who much preferred Socrates to Christ. He reinterpreted the gospel narratives in terms of Greek tragedies. For him, men and women become God because the highest manifestation of absolute spirit is found in philosophy, in reason. And he explains the incarnation as merely one such development, one such incarnation of reason. Critically, God, for Hegel, is an eternal idea. He is devoid of content. You can't even say he, really. Some sort of eternal essence and yet somehow there is the world, there is this created order. And wrestling with this dialectic, he tries to bring them together. How is he to bring together the created order, this material creation, and this absolute spirit? The point of contact is man. And man becomes the translator. Man becomes, in a sense, the very incarnation necessary to bring the materiality of the world back together with the abstract one. In other words, God realizes itself through man. Thus there is no God apart from nature. God is dependent upon nature and therefore dependent upon man. There is no unchanging God, no basis for knowledge, no resurrection, no physical resurrection of Christ, no hope beyond history. Reality for all pantheism is ultimately impersonal and of course that's what the new atheists want. And they want an impersonal reality. They don't want a God to whom they're answerable. They don't want a God who is the source of definition. They want, at best, some sort of cosmic intelligence, some kind of cosmic computer, as Paul Davies has put it, governing the universe. Some sort of emanation, but not the God of Scripture. This is why a pantheist like Hegel must also deny miracles and naturalize or rationalize everything away. And in his debate with uh, John Lennox, this is precisely what Richard Dawkins tried to do, was to rationalize and explain away and naturalize, of course, any claim to the miraculous. It has to be done from a pantheistic perspective, since nothing exists apart from God, and therefore God can't inter interrupt anything that's not a part of himself. 
If a miracle is God acting in his creation, if God is identical with his creation, he can't obviously act in it. He is it. And so the notion of a miracle, of a breaking in, of God doing something different in history, must be explained away. The task of pantheism is to overcome your ignorance and realize simply that you are God. To be cleansed by this ascent. And of course, many of you will know, will have friends and neighbors who are practicing yoga and so on and don't know the source of uh, yoga and its intention, its idea. It's uh, the Hindu practice of reaching enlightenment to try and attune yourself to the one to empty the mind the only truly true statement that one can make though in pantheism is this I am Brahman in fact Norman Geisler sums it up like this and I quote pantheists usually strive to live moral lives and to encourage others to do so Often their writings are filled with exhortation to use good judgment, be devoted to truth, and love others. However, these exhortations usually apply to a lower level of spiritual attainment. Once a person has achieved union with God, he has no further concern with moral laws. Non-attachment or utter unconcern for one's actions and their results are often taught as a prerequisite for achieving oneness with God. Since God is beyond good and evil, the person must transcend them to reach God. Morality is stressed only as a temporary concern, and underlying this, no absolute basis for right and wrong. So at best, at best, in Buddhist thought, for example, you can have morality on the lower level, while you're on your way up to discovering that human beings are so godlike, they are beyond the definitions of good and evil. They are restrained and contained and defined by nothing beyond themselves. If history is granted any kind of reality, it's usually seen as cyclic. There is no ultimate transformation. There is no judgment. There is no new heaven or new earth. There is only absorption into the one, into the void, into the ultimate impersonal. That's true for the naturalistic atheist. It's true for the pantheist and everything in between. A major problem facing pantheistic ethics and definitions then of good and evil is even the ability to ground a meaningful concept of good and evil. Think about this for a moment. If God is all, if all is God, then there is no ultimate distinction between good and evil. And evil would need to exist apart from God. But since he is all, Nothing can exist apart from him. So if there is evil and good in the world, then that must be part of who God is, what God is. Because nothing is distinct from him. So the pantheist cannot say, well, this is evil and I distance myself from it with my God, who condemns it. He can only take a neutral stance and just say, well, that's life. The only possible solution for the pantheist is to say that good and evil are illusions, even though they may be useful for our lives. Good and evil, right and wrong, ethical judgments are not in fact applicable to what is for the pantheist. 
doing right or doing wrong in an ultimate sense are equally meaningless because the foundations for ethics have been removed. C.S. Lewis puts it like this in Mere Christianity, and I quote, If you do not take the distinctions between good and bad seriously, then it is easy to say that anything you find in this world is a part of God. But of course, if you think something is really bad, and God really good, then you can't talk like that. And so often you hear people talking about a benevolent spirit, or a benevolent force, or ultimate goodness, or whatever, in these pantheistic terms, and not really having a clue what they are talking about. How does this flesh itself out in the popular ethics of our time? Cosmic humanism and the New Age movement is one expression, and it comes through in popular television series. In fact, the, the drama, voted drama of the year last year was Battlestar Galactica. Pretty good series, if you ask me. I thought it was quite good compared to the old one, but it was very interesting to watch because of the philosophy that is taught through Battlestar Galactica. Now, of course, Star Wars is the same. In Star Wars, you have a, you have a, um, a different form, another form of pantheism. The force is in everything, but these things are taught through popular culture. In Battlestar Galactica, it's the God within, and as the series moves through its story, and its commentary actually on life, and by the way, um, if you're thinking, what on earth is this guy doing watching Battlestar Galactica? Well, uh, if you want to learn to reach people and think about how people are thinking in popular culture, Places like Star Trek, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, the science fiction genre in particular, is very useful to watch. Because it's in those series that they actually try to wrestle with the biggest and most important ethical questions. And offer humanistic solutions. The captain of the Battlestar Galactica, interestingly enough, is named Adama, which is the Hebrew for Adam. And they are leaving a planet to try and find Earth, and on the way they're trying to discover who they are, what is the human race, and wrestling with every kind of question along the way. In it, it emerges that the God is the God within, the ultimate one. Shirley MacLaine said that free will is the enactment of the realization that you are God, the realization you are divine. Free will is making everything accessible to you. What is promoted then in contemporary culture, contemporary literature, and what has been dubbed the New Age movement, is essentially an ultimate ethical autonomy. True autonomy means we must internalize all values. What is absolutely abhorrent is any kind of restriction or outward imposition of a transcendent law. Evil by definition in this worldview, in the pantheistic view, becomes anything that claims to be from above. That's the very essence, think about it, of the supernatural. You have the natural and the supernatural, the above nature. And it is the supernatural in our time that is by definition, if you only have nature, if you have no supernatural, what do you have? The natural. 
And whatever occurs in nature is good. Therefore, if anything claims to be coming from outside a transcendent law order, it is by definition evil. True autonomy means that we must internalize every value. David Nobel notes how this impacts the New Age movement's approach to sexual ethics, and I quote, Shakti Gawain provides us with a practical application of total freedom in relation to our sexuality. If you're setting limits on your sexuality, this is a quote, your sexual energy, it becomes distorted. If you believe it is something to be hidden, ignored and controlled, then you learn to hold back completely or act sexually only at certain safe moments. According to the cosmic humanist worldview, such limitations sap your personal power and deny your godhood. So that the very essence of the sexual revolution and the pornographic culture in which we now live and the homoerotic culture in which we now live is an expression of this. Modern scientism equally denies the transcendent law order. And so for Dawkins, God's commandments are repressive and evil in one of his most famous statements in The God Delusion. God is described as this megalomaniacal, infanticidal, masochistic, and on and on he goes with this quotation. Laughable since he can't even define those terms. He certainly can't even say that they're evil. But he goes into a moral rage and rant against the God of Scripture. New Age ethics then, based on theological pantheism, is the meat and potatoes of Oprah Winfrey and daytime TV chat shows. It's the meat and potatoes of their ethics. Former cosmic humanist who became a Christian, Randall Bear, highlights the New Age creed, and I quote, Create your own reality according to what feels right for you. Recognize that? There is no external criteria then for judging right from wrong, and since all is one and all is God, what may appear evil in one lifetime may be good in the next phase of reincarnated existence. Just another way of talking about historical relativism. What may be right and wrong for our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation because of the movement of evolution and the constant flux and change of being can be completely redefined for this generation. And unfortunately, sadly friends, this is happening in so-called evangelical circles today. Where God is being updated where God himself is a changing God, he's an evolving God, he's the God of the pantheists. Where ethics are culturally relative and where we can have a moratorium on, on, on sexual ethics until we decide what is emerging in our culture. This is humanism and it has a pantheistic root. Again, Nobel notes, that the New Age, resting on its pantheistic theology, seeks to unite opposites, denying a real distinction between good and evil. There is only the flow and struggle of existence. And he says this, and I quote, David Spangler echoes this view, but in more startling language. Christ is the same force as Lucifer. Lucifer prepares man for the experience of Christhood. Lucifer works within each of us to bring us to wholeness as we move into the new age. 
What the world considers evil, war, murder, etc. becomes part of the evolutionary flow and struggle of reality as supraconsciousness strives to be born on a higher level. And so all that's happening in our struggle today with right and wrong, truth and falsehood, good and evil, is the struggle of our God consciousness to move up to the next level. And who knows what ethics, good and evil, will be tomorrow. Finally, the impact of Hegel's pantheism and his view of the modern state. The pantheism of Hegel and his views on social and political life are very, very important as a Western approach to pantheism. George Wilhelm Hegel, 1770-1831, was of course a post-Kantian thinker who inherited Kant's new approach to knowledge. There's the phenomenal realm which we can know. There's the noumenal realm, things in themselves which we cannot know. Interestingly enough, this was intolerable to Hegel because he felt that having something in and of itself that couldn't be known by us limited our godhood. So even allowing Kant's separation, where Kant wanted to allow for that leap of faith into the unknown, Hegel says, no, no, this is an inconsistency. Man as the new God must establish his sovereign decree, not God's. And of course, this is the essence again of the temptation in Genesis 3, is sovereignty. And is the right to predestine history. If God does not speak a sovereign word, if God has no decree, then man must establish his decree on history. And I'll be dealing with this tomorrow, so I won't digress for too much time. Things in themselves that leave room for a leap to God could not be tolerated. He wanted to rid Western thought of that dualism and instead absolute spirit or mind was reality. He says if you can't have, and he was right in this certainly, if you can't have a, 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 a conscious idea of things in themselves then they're a non-category. You can't even say that about them. You can't even talk about things in themselves. He said this, Hegel said this, and if you can follow this, you're uh, doing very well. And I quote, It is the inner being of the world, this is reality, it is the inner being of the world, that which essentially is and is per se. It assumes object objective, determinate form and enters into relations with itself. It is externality, otherness, and exists for itself. Yet, in this determination and in its otherness, it is still one with itself. It is self-contained and self-complete in itself and for itself at once. Sounds like gibberish to you? Or it's pantheism. World spirit. He's trying to articulate that this social spirit or mind is in a process of development, of realizing itself, that God this mind, this geist, is realizing itself through human beings. Hegel therefore was interested in history because he thought that history showed the development of the geist, of world spirit, of mind, of God. 
The social mind or spirit is God struggling to find himself in history and the task of philosophy must be to overcome the apparent dualism of nature and spirit. The goal is that spirit finally realizes itself as spirit where subject and object merge into one. One uh, social critic and philosopher of history, R.J. Rushduni, notes, and I quote, Hegel saw all philosophy historically as stages in the growth of man's freedom. The growth of Geist, mind, man, God, spirit, or world spirit is towards freedom, not towards system. This freedom means the eradication of the beyond and the radical independence of man as himself, true and total being. So you can see that this temptation to our first parents all those years ago just gets repeated and repeated and repeated where human beings seek to divinize themselves through their own philosophy. This is why Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon was so important in stating the two natures of Christ. Yet unmixed. The divine and the human do not cross. And this is what man has always wanted to do since the temptation to our first parents. It's the only diagnosis of our moral ills today. It's the only source of the problem of good and evil. Rastuni goes on in his book, The One and the Many, and I quote, Everything that from eternity has happened in heaven and earth, the life of God and all the deeds of time, simply are the struggles of mind to know itself, to make itself objective to itself, to find itself, be for itself, and finally unite itself to itself. It is alienated and divided. Creation and world spirit, mind. But only so as to be able thus to find itself and return to itself. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity separates us from all other views of philosophy and history. Where the one and the many are equally united in the triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, equally ultimate. Reality is not one, neither is it many, it is both one and many. And the equal ultimacy of the one and the many in the doctrine of the Trinity. The thinking of Hegel was developed both by Freud, by Marx, by Kierkegaard through Sartre and eventually gave us the existentialist, the existentialist philosophy of Sartre and the pragmatism of John Dewey. But for him, the reasoning individual was not an end in itself, it was a stage of mind towards an ultimate goal of self-consciousness, of self-contained existence, of the I as the sole and only object of reality. Has God said, you will not surely die, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. Define it for yourself. Critically, Hegel went on to say this as an outworking of his philosophy of history. And in his book, The Philosophy of History, he writes, The shape which the perfect embodiment of spirit assumes is the state. And he went on, the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. 
Now, we may have ceased to use the terms divine and God in reference to the state, but that's ultimately what we believe today. That the state is the highest expression of authority and represents essentially the divine. This was true of the Caesars, it was true of the Egyptians, it was true of the Babylonians, it has been true of every major empire. And it reappears in the modern state. Hegel, in his philosophy of right, describes the human personality as, and I quote, man's consciousness of himself as completely an abstract ego in which every concrete restriction and value is negated and without validity. Man is God. The apex of humanity is in the reasoning of man, and men in particular, and the rational embodiment of the collective of the state, and therefore the state practically becomes infallible. He was at war with the beyond and any basis for transcendent ethics. And yet, ironically, Hegel's thought could also be turned into anarchism, because because for Hegel, even the state itself was not an end in itself, it was only the best means to total freedom for man, total autonomy, total independence from, from God through the state, in the end, the goal was the utter destruction of all authority, or any kind of ultimate restriction upon the will and purpose of men and women. Self-realization was the ultimate goal, and Hegel's freedom is a freedom to no end except itself. And today we do have a Canadian state that thinks it can define good and evil, right and wrong, truth and falsehoods by executive fiat. And we have courts and legislators that think the same. The scripture tells us something different. It comes to us, doesn't it, not with abstract philosophical uh, uh, dialogues, but it comes to us with concrete commands in the revelation of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that love to God and neighbor is the essence and center and core of all ethics. But beyond that, and critically, it doesn't leave it there. The Bible doesn't say love in the abstract. It tells us what love looks like. This is the problem today. Love has become an elastic panacea for the justification of almost anything. But God actually tells us what love looks like. Love doesn't murder, doesn't commit adultery, doesn't steal, doesn't bear false testimony, doesn't covet, doesn't have idols, doesn't abuse God's Sabbath doesn't take the Lord's name in vain, doesn't have anything before God. That's what love looks like. That's how it's to be reflected. The law of love, the law of liberty that James speaks about, has been given to us in his word. We are not left with an abstraction. And what we have done in the modern church today is we've taken the concept of love and said, here's the panacea of the Christian ethics. We can abstract it, give it a new humanistic meaning and bring it back down again and say, oh, well... God is love. And yet, Scripture says that God is also just, righteous, true, jealous, and much more. We're called to work for justice against injustice and to recover God's word and God's law for our 
ourselves, our families and our social environment. Because God, through the coming of Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit, has inscribed the law of God into the very desires now of our hearts. That's the new covenant, isn't it? Spoken of in Hebrews and by the prophet Jeremiah. That his law would be inscribed on the tables of our hearts so that it becomes our desire and our delight. Our joy and our source of rejoicing is in love to God and neighbour. Christ who came and fulfilled the law and obeyed the law perfectly was the consummation of the law. And so scripture is our final referent for ethical judgments. The two extremes, of course, to be avoided are legalism and antinomianism. Antinomianism means literally anti-law. It means, well, God's finished with that. God doesn't have an ethical standard anymore. Somehow, God's whole being and nature has somehow changed. So that what he said to Moses no longer applies. And yet Jesus said, not one jot, not one stroke shall pass till all has been accomplished. God's being and nature and character have not changed. But we live in an antinomian age. And also there's legalism and pharisaism which is so closely linked to the satanic. Which is self-righteousness. Self-justification. I'm righteous in what I'm doing. I don't need the atonement of Christ. I can define my own righteousness. I can define my own legal obedience. And even at times a focus on externals so that hair length and alcohol and such become more important than the substance of the law of God. Jesus was very, very clear on this point to the Pharisees. He says, you bring your tithes, you bring your cumin, you bring your spices to the temple and you think that pleases God and you don't care for your own parents. You've overlooked the weightier matters of the law. And yet we've been in a church in North America that's more concerned about whether somebody has a beer than whether they're living a righteous life. And that sends the wrong message to the younger generation. The law of the Lord, Scripture says, is perfect, reviving the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. He is our rock, his work is perfect, everything he he does is just and fair. Deuteronomy 32. The law, Paul says, itself is holy and right and good. Heaven and earth will pass away before God's law, friends, passes away, before his righteousness passes away, before his standard of good and evil. It cannot no more pass than God can cease to exist. And the early church, clearly in their principle of interpretation with the Old Testament was continuity unless discontinuity was specifically indicated. We have reversed that in the modern church and said, well, we will have discontinuity unless something is repeated in the New Testament. And yet clearly when the Apostle Peter was on the rooftop before he went to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, what did God need to show him after the resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit? A long time after, he had to show him a vision of the clean and unclean animals. And God said to him, kill and eat. He said, no Lord, I have never touched anything unclean. 
And God, in that vision to Peter, sets aside the ceremonial aspects, as the scripture does elsewhere, or what we might call the restorative aspects of the law that had to do with the temple sacrifice. But the moral and civil requirements of God's law remain the perfect standard of righteousness for men and nations, and that is our plumb line, friends. God's word, defining good and evil, right from wrong, giving us the answer, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ who renovates the human heart, regenerates us, and writes his law into the very desires of our hearts. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.